Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 55, The Shanghai Tunnels, Portland, Oregon. Nina was a low-class prostitute who worked in the always-wet basement of a high-priced merchant hotel on Davis Street in Portland. The circumstances of her death are not clear. Some say that she was killed by a jealous lover. Some say that she was killed by a pimp when he discovered that she wished to leave prostitution. Some say that she was killed by gangsters, punishing her for striking a deal with missionaries to help her escape in exchange for information useful in shutting the brothel down. And still others claim that she simply heard something she should not have heard and was killed by a criminal gang as a result. Whatever the motive, she was found dead at the bottom of the hotel's elevator shaft, her death caused by the fall. Her murderer was never caught or convicted, which is not surprising considering that Portland was about as lawless a town as one could find in the West during the late 19th century. Since the time of her death, Nina has been seen wandering the premises, especially in the basement, always wearing a black dress. The building is no longer a hotel, but home to the Old Town Brewery. Patrons and staff alike have reported strange occurrences, especially in the basement. They have smelled her sweet perfume, heard voices, and had objects move on their own. The staff of the Portland Walking Tours, who run a ghost tour in downtown Portland, have placed a bowl full of Scrabble pieces in Nina's basement room, and it is said that she will sometimes arrange the letters to spell out messages. To say that Nina is in the basement is a bit of a misnomer. Yes, she is said to appear in the basement of the building, but the basement itself was part of a large subterranean network of tunnels, known as the Shanghai Tunnels, which is, to this day, still present underneath a large portion of Portland's historic old town. The Shanghai Tunnels are said to have been built by the Tongs, or Chinese gangs, as a way to secretly move contraband including men and women who had been kidnapped and were to be forced into slavery, as well as places for gambling rooms, brothels, and opium dens. The tunnels were dark, out of sight, and ideal for doing crime. And in Portland, the Tongs were busy and crime had many victims. As you might imagine, Nina is not alone in the tunnels. She is, in fact, only one of many ghosts said to haunt Portland's subterranean lair. People have been reporting strange happenings in the tunnels for decades. While much of this is standard fare, suddenly feeling cold, feeling as if you are being watched, seeing something just out of the corner of your eyes, feeling a tug on your shirt or something unseen tripping you, and, of course, the ubiquitous shadowy figure seen just at the edge of the light, some of it is more specific. For example, many people have reported seeing an Asian man walking through the tunnels. This is no surprise as Asian shopkeepers and merchants made frequent use of the tunnels, and opium dens are reputed to have been present within them. 
According to the tour guides at Portland Ghosts, this particular spirit is known as Sam and is reputed to turn off the lights in the building basements and to cause objects to move. Presumably, he is not visible when this happens as, otherwise, it's just a person moving things. The folks at Portland Ghosts even report hearing disembodied voices calling out for Sam. Old Town Brewery is not the only place with a haunted basement or ghost story. The White Eagle Tavern is reputedly quite haunted and may be discussed in depth in the future, but for this episode, the most interesting place is its basement, as it is reputed to have been connected to the Shanghai Tunnels. As the stories go, white prostitutes were active in a brothel on the second floor of the building, but black prostitutes worked in the basement. It is said that, while some of the prostitutes came into that life as a way to earn money when other avenues had been shut down, many were trafficked and forced into brothels. The same basement also contained an opium den, and, of course, any patron who lost consciousness there, whether due to drink, opium, or being drugged by a worker, risked being sold to an unscrupulous ship's captain and waking up already out to sea, forced into the life of a sailor. While much of the smuggling was of common items in order to avoid customs duties, things such as drugs, exotic animals, weapons, people, and even alcohol during the Prohibition era were also moved through the tunnels and snuck past authorities. And so, in a place that held so much crime and misery, the ghosts have been active. The ones said to haunt the basement are very much what you might expect for a place with such a history. The stairs are said to be haunted by the spirit of a large, muscular Chinese man who worked as a guard or enforcer for the criminal enterprise that ran the establishment. He sometimes appears before visitors, but is more often an unseen force that pushes people, especially women, as they head down the stairs. In one case, he is even said to have picked up a waitress by the shirt and carried her downstairs. People also report seeing both Asian men and black women wearing 19th century clothing in the basement. Dark figures are witnessed, and voices can be heard speaking. There are, of course, many more stories of the White Eagle, but most appear unrelated to the tunnels, so I'm limiting my discussion of them in this episode. I will note that most of the White Eagle stories take place on the ground floor bar or on the second floor. Still, there is a recurring element in several of these stories of objects being flung across the room towards the basement door and often sliding down the stairs into the basement. It is as if the tunnels are trying to suck things from above the ground down into them. However one looks at it, under the modern and thriving city of Portland, there is darkness underground, and that darkness is accessible. The ghosts who haunt the tunnel show that even the progressive and exciting city of Portland has literal roots in 19th century crime and exploitation. In this way, Portland is very much a city of the American West. Commentary Portland, rather like my former home of Santa Cruz, is a delightfully strange town. The flavor of the town is odd, embracing everyone from the straight-laced businessmen to the itinerant artist struggling to make a name for herself. Portland's better-known institutions and businesses cater to the intellectual, such as Powell's City of Books, and to the just-plain wacky, such as Voodoo Donuts, which not only offers voodoo doll donuts, but will also perform wedding ceremonies. 
So a story pertaining to the grimy business of organized crime, as well as Latter-day slavery, may seem out of place, but the story has become part of Portland's folklore and represents the way that Portlanders view their own town's past by both celebrating its seediness and strangeness while being happy to be distant from those days. Perhaps more importantly for the story's longevity, it turns the city's basements from bland standard features of buildings to lucrative destinations for both locals with an interest in the spooky and the tourist traffic that comes through Portland. In reading about ghost tourism, it is common to see it listed as a subset of dark tourism, that is, tourism that focuses on past violence, death, and suffering. I think this is an oversimplification. Both my own experiences on ghost walks and the work of Alina Perak have demonstrated that there are many cases where ghost tourism focuses on what might be thought of as the great men, and sometimes women, of history and their triumphs. But as I've also seen, and as is illustrated here, ghost tourism can, and often does, focus on the grim, violent, and upsetting. In the case of Portland, its ghost tourism absolutely is an element of dark tourism. These tours focus on people being kidnapped into slavery or forced into prostitution, as well as the inherent drama of murder, drugs, and organized crime. The only problem is that it looks as if history is far more boring than the stories would make it seem. Now, don't get me wrong, murders, prostitution, organized crime, kidnappings, and drug use, all of that absolutely happened in Portland. There's no question. These things pop up in pretty much every city on the planet, and they appear to be as old as human civilization. Shanghaiing was the practice of kidnapping men and forcing them to work on ships. This is also known as impressment, and it was a common problem in many seafaring areas. So, the kidnapping and forced service of men on sailing ships absolutely occurred. In fact, it was a common problem all along the west coast of North America. But the Shanghai tunnels are more sensation than reality. Some tunnels do exist underneath Portland. They are physically real, but their purposes were much more straightforward. These tunnels connected building basements and allowed the movement of goods between them as well as to and from the waterfront. The tunnels were also present between Chinatown and the main business section of the downtown area, which isn't as large an area as many of the stories claim. They also likely served as secret entrances and exits to brothels and speakeasies during Prohibition. In researching this episode, I found that historians were clear that there was little evidence of these tunnels being used to force men into labor on ships. In the Chinatown area, they do appear to have been used for opium dens and other illegal activities. It is known that Portland's early police force assigned to Chinatown was poorly paid and willing to take bribes to look the other way. That ended in the early 20th century, just before World War I, when a series of local laws and changes in police enforcement cracked down on local illegal activities in Chinatown, which also indiscriminately smashed much of the perfectly legitimate business as well. And that was Chinatown, not the tunnels underneath other parts of the city. Now, since the tunnels were hidden from view, they likely were used for crimes. Again, there were secret entrances to Prohibition-era bars and brothels, but there is no evidence that they were used for the constant shanghaiing of men. A massive criminal kidnapping enterprise will make its mark on the historic record, even if the crime itself is kept quiet. People talk. And even if there was, as some people allege, a massive conspiracy on the part of the city government to keep this hushed up, as anyone who has worked with the historic record knows, such a cover-up has never succeeded in keeping rumors out of newspapers or out of people's letters and diaries. So, yes, there are basements that function as tunnels, and we can probably take it as a given that some criminal activity did occur there. 
However, as put by the Oregon Encyclopedia, quote, Historians of the Old Town District have confirmed that shanghaiing and crimping occurred there, along with other criminal and unsavory activities, but they have not found any evidence of any network of tunnels linked to them. Those who tour the so-called Shanghai tunnels today will walk into a basement, not through any iniquitous tunnels, unquote. So if these subterranean features are more mundane than the stories hold and the activity after which the tunnels are named didn't actually occur there, then where does this story come from and why does it persist? Well, there are genuine newspaper accounts of crime in Chinatown that date to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and these stories no doubt lay some of the groundwork for the tales that would come. The stories, typical of a lot of press at the time, painted Portland's Chinatown in the same way that newspapers in other cities painted their own local Chinese districts as dangerous places filled with crime and vice. They indicated that secret tunnels often held the worst of the violence and misery, but these stories, in Portland and in other cities, typically exaggerated the crime and danger of Chinatown. To be sure, Chinatown was typically a poor neighborhood with lax law enforcement that did allow criminal enterprises some breathing room. But these were also functioning neighborhoods with businesses and homes and not the near-war zones so often depicted in the press. From the 1850s through the 1940s, the coverage of Chinatowns, whether in Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or even where I live in Fresno, was usually colored by a mix of racism and nationalism and intended to paint the residents of these neighborhoods as being subhuman and criminal. It's actually worth noting that the Chinatown tunnels are not unique to Portland. Some years ago, I worked on a project in the historic Fresno Chinatown. A historian and architecture expert explained to me that the connected basements were actually common in Chinatown neighborhoods in the western United States and were often called tunnels by outsiders, though the residents usually just called them basements, because they were basements. These connected basements existed in Fresno, they were part of Portland, and the folks I was working with informed me that they were also found in other cities. However, talk of connected basements doesn't invoke fear in a newspaper reader in the same way that talk of crime tunnels does. And so the latter is the way that the stories tended to be written. Regardless of the degree to which the stories were sensationalized, it is likely that these tales of subterranean crime began with these early newspaper stories. But these crimes didn't include shanghaiing. So how did that get connected? From what I can gather, the pop culture connection between these different threads of lore likely began in the 1930s when Stuart Holbrook wrote a series of stories for the Sunday Oregonian. His stories were full of unsourced, possibly false, tales about brothels, shanghaiing, and crime. From what I can tell, these stories didn't attribute any of this to the tunnels, but they did set the baseline for tales of a rowdy early Oregon. In 1963, the owner of a Port Townsend hardware store placed a sign in the window advertising tours of the Shanghai Tunnel, in quotes, underneath the shop. It is likely that there was at least some notion of Shanghai Tunnels by this time, as the sign otherwise would make little sense, but I cannot confirm that this wasn't a completely novel concept. Regardless, this idea mixed earlier reporting and rumors of the tunnels beneath Chinatown with Holbrook's tales. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, newspaper articles began to appear that discussed these Shanghai tunnels, playing up the crime, especially the kidnappings, and often leaned on the Chinatown origins. At this latter point, the stories relied heavily upon what was, by this time, a well-worn and widely circulated bit of folklore, 
While the stories of dangerous and exotic Chinatowns may have had their origins in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they had never really gone away, and therefore this angle has been played up in most of the tunnel lore in Portland since the 1970s. And given the timing, I have to wonder if global politics didn't play a role here. Historian W. Scott Pohl, in his book Dark Carnivals, makes the case that fears of Asia resulting from mainland China's turn to a communist government and the U.S. involvement in Korea and Vietnam resulted in the perpetuation of many earlier stereotypes about Asians and pop culture surrounding horror films and fiction. If he is correct, it seems reasonable to think that this also influenced the growth of the crime and ghost folklore surrounding Portland's underground especially when one considers that these spirits are not of lonely, homesick outsiders stuck in a foreign country, as I've discussed to be the case for many stories of Chinese laborers in California. The spirits of Asian men in the tunnels are, at best, indifferent to those who encounter them, and at worst, hostile. In the case of the ghost of the Chinese man on the stairs of the tavern, he is particularly a menace to women and, it seems implied in the writings I have found, to white women. The other spirits, those of the opium addicts and especially of the prostitutes, are victims of these Asian men. It's hard not to read a fear of Asians into these tales. The stories gained popularity during the Vietnam War, possibly because they focused on the kidnappings of men who would go to sea on the way to Asia and on the crimes, both real and imagined, of the community in Chinatown during a time of increasing tensions with China, which occurred concurrently with U.S. involvement in Vietnam. This was also during a time when many people in the U.S. began to see Japan as a dangerous competitor. Add to this that, up until fairly recently, Eastern Asia tended to be treated as a monolithic entity in much of American culture, and it's not hard to see why the fear of China, frustration in Vietnam, and economic worries over Japan would coalesce into a general anxiety about Asia and Asians. All of these elements could very easily justify why these stories found purchase. It is striking, but not surprising. But the tale of the Chinese ghost assaulting women at the White Eagle is also a sign of the falsity of the claims. The White Eagle began operation in 1906, was never connected to a tunnel system, served the Polish community in its early years, and was a very different type of establishment than most of the tales portray. It stands out in that its history, though sad and sometimes troubling in its own way, is very different than what is portrayed in the stories of the Shanghai Tunnels. Beyond the White Eagle, in the sources that I could find, the most commonly discussed non-Asian ghosts were the spirits of prostitutes like Nina. This seems worth a bit more thought. Though the underground features are referred to as the Shanghai Tunnels, I found no stories of the ghosts of kidnapped men. But I found quite a few stories of the ghosts of women kidnapped and forced into prostitution. The history of prostitution in the American West is complicated and upsetting. As in many places, many of the women who were involved in this life had been kidnapped and forced into it. There were some women who entered the world's oldest profession for economic or even social reasons, but those stories do not exist in a vacuum, and we should never forget the context of social pressures that might cause women to work in the sex industry. In the Portland stories I could find, the women were either said to have been forced into the life or else the reasons for becoming prostitutes were left vague. However, it was made clear that they were mistreated by both the men who ran the brothels and those who visited them. They are portrayed as clearly and unambiguously suffering. They were victims. This is worth keeping in mind as you consider that most of the ghost stories are either told as part of the various ghost tours in Portland or come from the websites of these companies. Even when I found sources not related to the ghost tour companies, they cited the ghost tour companies as authorities on these tales. 
So what does the fact that most of the stories seem to come from tour operators and the focus on prostitutes and not the Shanghai men after whom the tunnels are named have to do with each other? I think it's a mix of prurient interests on the part of the public and a notion of a worthy victim. Living as a man in the United States, I know that there is a tendency to think that men should be able to, as it is often said, take care of themselves. If a man is physically attacked, he should be willing to fight. And if he allows himself to be drugged or simply drinks himself into a stupor, then he's fallen down on his job and deserves what's coming to him. While this notion is most clearly and vocally stated among the dimwits who call themselves alpha males or similar nonsense, it is embedded in the way that Americans, and if we're being honest, many other cultures, think about manhood. We may be able to feel poorly for the man kidnapped from a bar or brothel and forced into shipboard slavery, but we tend to experience that as pity rather than empathy. Poor guy, bad fate, but, well, he should have seen that coming. We don't want to spend time with these guys. They have failed as men, after all. They are victims, but they aren't worthy or virtuous. They are either wimps or lack the self-control necessary to keep themselves safe. We can see them as either cautionary tales or foolish figures to laugh at, but we don't want to meet them and we wouldn't consider them to be scary in a dark tunnel. The women forced into prostitution and abused while working as prostitutes are a different story. While American culture is at best ambivalent and often outright hostile to actual contemporary sex workers, including but not limited to prostitution, there is a narrative that is often employed in discussing women of the past and those in the present that presents them as soiled doves in the parlance of the 19th century or as fallen women. The notion is that they were once innocents who, through vaguely defined processes, came to their current state. Any number of things may have led them into prostitution. They may have lost all other forms of financial support. They may have made choices that ruined other chances for them during a time when women had very limited options to support themselves. They may have been tricked by scheming men, forced by circumstances into debasement, or, as is often indicated in Portland, forced into slavery. Whatever the path, they found themselves, typically against their will or at least against their wishes, in the brothels where they were abused in a variety of ways. If the women in the brothels are victims, then we don't expect them to be able to fight their way out of the situation, and we are able to sympathize with them. They are worthy victims, and finding them in a dark tunnel enhances the sense of sadness which flavors the thrill we get from a scary story but they are also involved in work that most of us are uncomfortable thinking about and which most people in the U.S. look down on. We are thus able to put a barrier between us and them, allowing us to sympathize enough to provide us with the thrill of the encounter with something dark and frightening while maintaining enough distance that we don't find ourselves disturbed or upset. Of course, American society is uneasy with the entire notion of sex work, typically viewing those who engage in it as somehow dirty or sinful. And while ghosts like Nina may be seen as worthy victims, they may also be seen as unclean and or criminal. It is possible that this is why they are trapped as ghosts and haven't moved on to the afterlife. They are serving a penance in an earthly purgatory for their sins, even if they were forced into those sins. But this may be reading too much into it. It may simply be the case that these stories of the prostitutes persist because they give us victims who are associated with something that we see as scandalous and fascinating. Regardless, it is striking that there are stories of the ghosts of women victims, but not men victims. The ghost of a prostitute is more titillating than the ghost of a kidnapped man. But there is another element to this. Discussions of anything involving sex, especially if it's something that's considered deviant in some way, 
grab our attention. Our prurient interests are engaged. And while I'm sure that there are listeners who will have strong opinions about whether or not it should be so, the fact is that sex as commerce is something that seems deviant to a large portion of the American population. So discussion of prostitution, forced or otherwise, will tend to pique people's interests. Something else worth noting is that while there are many stories about the ghosts of prostitutes, I only found one who had a name, and that was Nina. She is, as stated, in the basement of a business closely associated with ghost tours. Now, Nina may be a figure from actual history or genuine local lore, or Nina may be a character created for the purpose of tourism. But let's talk about her and contrast her with some of the other potential ghosts. The sources that I found often mention segregated brothels, with white women in some and black women in others, and, interestingly, Asian women left out completely despite the association of these tunnels with Chinatown. The exclusion of Asian women may be explained by the fact that, while Chinese and other Asian women did immigrate to the United States in the 19th century, there were strong and ever-shifting restrictions on their immigration based on a fear that if women were allowed in, then men might set down roots and never leave. That was certainly true, but the fear of Chinese immigrants was based on the intertwined worries over wage competition among workers and racist beliefs that generally limited immigration even as the U.S. was dependent on immigrant labor. In the end, a huge number of Chinese men were brought in as laborers, but very few women were, so it follows that we wouldn't hear too much about the ghosts of Chinese women. There is a lot of discussion of the ghosts of both white and black prostitutes, but only Nina has a name. What's more, Nina is interactive. The people running the ghost tours that visit Nina's basement have placed a set of Scrabble tiles in a bowl and allege that words are often spelled out either in the bowl or on the table next to the bowl. As the star personality of the tunnels, it is worth noting that Nina is typically characterized as white or possibly Latina, but not black. Why is she given a name and a way to interact? Why is she given this honor and not a ghost of another ethnicity? Well, there's no way to know for sure, but it likely feeds into the previous discussion of worthy victims. People will often have more sympathy for someone who is like them than someone who is different, and as there is a tendency for whiteness to be treated as a neutral ethnicity in American discourse, it is not surprising that Nina is treated as essentially white. But if you stop and think about it for a while, it does beg the question of why there aren't equally interactive spirits of black prostitutes or of Shanghai men or of any of the other people who were in the tunnels. But with the ghosts of prostitutes in general and with Nina in particular, we have worthy victims who deserve sympathy. Those who we can see as being forced into something that they didn't want and who were forced into something that will grab the attention of most people. One of them is even highly notable and allegedly interactive. We also have stories of the ghosts of unidentified men walking through the tunnels, as well as clearly violent or criminal men being present. These suggest danger, and there are stories implying that you may be in danger if you encounter them. But stories of actual harm done to customers are non-existent. It's scary, but in a safe way. Put all of that into an underground setting, and you have a series of otherwise boring basements that people will pay good money to visit. And make no mistake, the ghosts of the Portland Underground are a business. The stories of the Shanghai Tunnel spread rapidly in the 70s as tour companies formed and establishments found that this was a good way to bring in business. And the ghost stories and ghost tours grew with the general tunnel tourism. As I noted earlier, every single ghost story I found tracked back to a business that was trading on the promise of spooks. Typically, this was ghost tour companies, 
but often it was bars and restaurants that found customers who were happy to spend money having a meal or a drink, if it also meant a potential encounter with something otherworldly and uncanny. And this, I think, is the crux of the ghost folklore of the Shanghai Tunnels. While it would not be the least bit surprising if there were rumors of creepy happenings in the tunnels prior to the 1960s, that the sources of all currently available stories seem to be ghost tours, and the businesses that work with ghost tours strongly suggest that the ghosts are made of money and not ectoplasm. To be sure, these stories have filtered into folklore. They often come up when I talk with people about ghosts, and I found them in books and websites that feature ghost folklore and allegedly true encounters. But the stories for the tunnels always seem to come back to the tours, and therefore to commerce. And this may explain Nina, a ghost that interacts, who is a tragic figure, and who is a worthy white victim, is an asset to a business that trades on ghost tales. Similarly, the Asian roughneck who attacks women at a staircase provides a compelling, though more frightening, figure to lure in the curious. Other ghosts may be present to lend the tour ambiance, but they needn't be named or even described in any detail. They are, in effect, extras in the dramas that play out in tourists' imaginations. If it sounds like I'm attacking these ghost tourists, rest assured that I am not. They are fun, and I know this from experience. My wife and I visited Portland back in 2008, and knowing my enjoyment of ghost stories, she booked us two spots on a ghost tour that ended in the Old Town Brewery, at the time called Old Town Pizza. I was, at the time, involved with organized skepticism, and I paid close attention to how the tour we were on used elements of ghost hunting seen on television shows, as well as dubious and unverifiable claims, as a way to sell the ghost story to tourists. The tour was run as an investigation, meaning that we were all handed electromagnetic field meters, EMF meters for short, and encouraged to use them while we were in supposedly haunted places. Our guide spoke excitedly about the ghosts of Portland and her own personal experiences. The EMF meters tended to spike sporadically, as one would expect in a major city with numerous electrical devices scattered throughout the landscape. However, Every time one spiked, our tour guide would talk about the usefulness of these devices in locating ghosts. By the time we arrived in the basement where Nina is said to have spent most of her time, my good lady wife and I had discovered how to manipulate the readings on the EMF meters by flicking our wrists in particular ways and standing under particular pieces of electrical equipment. The fact that we were clearly intentionally manipulating readings didn't seem to dampen our guide's enthusiasm. Of course, she probably gets smartasses like us on the tour all the time. And the fact that she managed to maintain enthusiasm despite this really speaks well of her work ethic. It was interesting to observe that the tour guide didn't ask that we believe or disbelieve in ghosts. She simply set a stage for our imaginations to run wild by suggesting that perhaps we were encountering ghosts when the meters went off. Some people on the tour clearly were believers, others clearly not. And some didn't seem to think much of ghosts one way or another, but we were all having fun off on a lark. We didn't have to commit to the existence of ghosts to enjoy the experience. We had a great time, and I would go on the tour again. However, just because the tours are fun, and I do encourage visitors to try one, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try peeling back the layers and looking at why they interest us. The entertainments we choose say a lot about our culture, and that is worth examining. I think that the stories of the haunted Shanghai tunnels show a confluence of commerce, racism, and xenophobia, ambivalence about sex work, and a desire for thrills all running together. It is worth thinking about.
If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!